It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Kriya Yoga Podcast. I'm here with a special guest today, Stuti Ja, who is a student in the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program, our, our two-year online course. And um, a while ago, I extended the invitation out to participants in that course who had some speaking experience and could keep their thoughts fairly organized uh, to uh, interview me for the Kriya Yoga podcast. That way, it's not just me always talking uh, about stuff that I think is important, but bringing up some things that um, individuals walking the path, students of the path, uh, things that they want to know about. So uh, welcome, Stuti. It's wonderful to have you here today. Thank you, Ryan. And uh, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to interview you today. No problem. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I know that you have uh, a significant list of questions, so we'll see how we do with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so go ahead, start at the top, and let's see what, you've, what, what you're curious about. Okay, so this first, these first set of questions are uh, basically about you know, life in, in, in current situation. And uh, the first part is about atheism and spirituality. Mm -hmm. So I live near a big city and most of my friends are atheists or they don't believe in any formal religion. Mm -hmm. So my, and, and honestly, almost all of them are, in my opinion, living a yogic life. They're doing mm -hmm. what one is supposed to do. Uh, they are not harming anyone. They're not hurting anyone. They are doing their work as honestly as possible. They're involved in charity. Now, my question is, does it make a difference that these people do not believe in God? Right. Um, well, that's a good question. And the, the short answer to that is no, it doesn't make a difference uh, for a few different reasons. Number one, um, God doesn't really care one way or the other whether people believe in him. And that doesn't really, uh, that doesn't really uh, matter too much in the long run because ultimately you know, many people think of God as a, a personal figure in the sky. And, you know, as we begin to meditate and explore yoga practices and we evolve through it and mature, we start to recognize that what we have used as a concept of God is, is simply that it's just a concept. Um, we can relate to the powers of God through prayer and through mantra and through meditation. Uh, but ultimately what we're aiming to do is simply realize what is the truth of this thing that we call God. And really God is everything. That's what it boils down to. So whether or not someone believes in God or doesn't believe in God doesn't really matter. And what I have found is that as you are seeing people who are living an ethical life, people who are doing their best to um, do good work within the world, um, maintain uh, positive connections with others, uh, eating right, uh, developing their mind and consciousness so that they're, they're more mentally and psychologically healthy, what they find eventually is they have a sense of inner peace and wisdom and knowing just by doing that, and they don't have to call it God. And I can even recall one time um, Mr. Davis during a talk at Center for Spiritual Awareness, uh, he mentioned that the term that we have for God is actually a fairly recent invention. I, I, I could be wrong, but I believe he might have said around six, was it 600 AD? Uh, anywhere, it, it, it's, it's something recent that we've kind of come up with this word or this idea of God. And, and the term itself means, in a sense, the highest good. So this is a tricky question because on one hand, um, a belief in God and understanding of God for some people helps to inspire them along the path, but ultimately belief doesn't really matter. It's, it's, it's kind of moving into that state of clarity that the yoga is, is aiming for. And anyone who's living uh, a good life will tend to come to that somehow. Yeah, that was my thought 
too because many of them are living a good life and in the end that's all we aspire for all of us so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah thank you thank you for answering that question no problem uh okay so let me move on to the next question because we have a long list so yes uh so the next part of this question is basically about activism and spirituality and many of us have been disturbed by things that have happened in our society uh not just in recent past but over centuries and uh, we've seen a lot of protests and uh, other kind of activism in 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 especially in the US in the last few weeks now my question is that if a student of yours come to you and ask you that that's what they feel their calling is that they want to be a part they want to be an activist mm-hmm. so what will be your advice to them how can they reconcile the yogic path with their desire to be an activist right that is an ongoing debate in in spirituality i can remember uh reading a talk with ramana maharshi and um i believe an individual was brought up uh gandhi and um he asked ramana maharshi uh why aren't you ramana maharshi why aren't you doing what gandhi does why aren't you out there and and fighting the good fight and mm. ramana maharshi would in- indicate and say that the highest service that we can perform is that of our own self realization and i have i'm surrounded with many people who really care about the world right and you know my late wife melissa she was always very much interested in 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 helping communities and in, in helping um minorities where she could um raising children well i mean making sure that kids had what they need all she was very much into that um many of my friends even one of the meditation groups up here yeah. uh jim norton he's a a methodist minister i actually interviewed him on another podcast uh one mm-hmm. time but he's also he's been active his entire life he's he's almost 80 and so he can remember the civil rights movement and all these sorts of things okay. and um he also is very active mm-hmm. um so i understand <laughs> this this desire and this drive and the thing that i always wonder about and and when people ask me about this i i try to get to the heart of the matter about what is really what is really in, inspiring them to want to take this up mm-hmm. now it makes sense that when there's injustice in the world yes we should all try somehow to mm-hmm. correct that or, or work through that you know um but everyone not everyone has the same kind of role mm-hmm. so when it comes to being an activist or an individual who thinks they want to to change the world uh, i i always like to encourage people to stop and take a look at what is your real motivation is it because you have the skills the capacity and the, the passion and desire all together that you can effectively make a difference. Yeah. Or is it that you're being triggered by, you know, whatever might have happened to you as a as a child psychologically and you're just really reacting or responding from a place of um like a, a psychological complex. Mhm. Um and I one of actually one of the students in the the Kriya Yoga apprenticeship program who who lives in town here with me he's uh, of African American descent um I asked him about this because he personally from what I've gathered doesn't really feel the need to go walk in protests or to uh right. do do a lot of what's going on and I was like okay well why is that he says you know Ryan he's like I've seen this happen again and again and again he's like some injustice mm-hmm. occurs and then everyone gets up in arms and then it passes and we're back to where we were and it just keeps happening again and again yeah. and we discussed that and um came to the somewhat under mutual understanding that when there's injustice in the world we need to do our best to uh, speak up right. How, however uh, w- the best service we can render like ramana maharshi says is number 1 mm-hmm. to develop our own self realization and number 2 to attend to our own spiritual practices not simply the practices of meditation and just those sorts of things but if 
if, if, if an individual develops greater inner peace mm -hmm. and if an individual develops a greater sense of inner truth, then how they live their life impacts everyone around them silently. Yeah. In the same way that um, many people in my immediate family, uh, I've heard them say all kinds of interesting, not quite politically correct, and sometimes <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard them make jokes that made me go, my God, is this really my family? Are they really saying this? No, no I, even, all of us have those kind of family members. So. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and what I found was, over the years, is that if I'm, if I'm interacting with them, if I challenge them, if I push them, they tend to get more entrenched in their belief and they push right back. Mm. But if I let them say what they're going to say and I just sit there as peacefully as possible and, and let, it, let it, in a sense, process, mm. um, and they see that there's no reaction on my part, what happens eventually is they come around and they say, well, what do you think about this? And they ask it sincerely. And then I explain my position from a yogic point of view about harmlessness, truthfulness, mm -hmm. and it makes them stop and kind of question how they've been thinking. Right. And, and I've seen over the years that they've become less and less uh, mm -hmm. sort of, uh, they've become less and less uh, sort of part of the problem. <laughs> belligerent yes yes oh, okay. and and it even made them start thinking about well what, what about the people i hang around i mean meaning mm -hmm. them themselves uh maybe they don't quite have the right idea so there's there's a few levels to this number one if a person has the skills the capacity and the energy to make a difference Right. then activism, if it's part of their dharma and their path, wonderful. But I do encourage people to stop and take a step back and say, is it really because that is part of your path and, and because you have the capacity to help there? Or is it because you are just so reactionary to it that, that you, you just want to, you want to respond, you want to retaliate in a way. Right. Because retaliation, you know, the other day, um, I'm not sure if you were, were you on the, the, the call last night? Um, yes, I was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, before before we got on onto a, a topic, uh, the questions uh, I mentioned how I was I was the in mask. A, yeah, I was in a grocery store, and I went to this grocery store because usually it's pretty quiet. People seem to be pretty nice there, and mm -hmm. I noticed that a couple of the uh, employees they were wearing a mask, but they were wearing it down so that their nose was was showing. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought to myself. Do they understand how a mask works? <laughs> and, and I thought, well, I'm going to bring it up to them. And first I brought it up to someone who was wearing a mask. I said, hey, mm -hmm. you know, have you thought about asking your coworkers if they know how to wear a mask, like what, how it works? And he mm -hmm. said, I, and this was an elderly man. He said, I know. He's like, but they, you know, they just don't listen. And so I thought, well, I'm going to ask them. And I knew after seeing many viral videos of people being angry and belligerent, I, I knew that coming up to them and saying, are you stupid? Why aren't you wearing the mask right? I, I knew that that wasn't going to work yeah, because yeah. essentially, uh, essentially uh, violence makes stupid even stupider usually. <laughs> yes, agree. And, yes. And so I, I walked up to this one woman and um, I said, hey, do, do you know how that mask works? And, <laughs> she, and she looked at me and then she turned her back on me. And I thought, oh, okay. And so I went into a description. I said, look, I was like, a while, a while ago, I had to wear a mask for about 12 hours a day because my wife was going through leukemia treatments and her immune system was next to nothing. So if she got any kind of disease or, or minor cold, she would die. And, and it's important to protect people. And the whole time I'm, I'm saying it, just like I said to you, and she keeps turning away from me when walking away. And, uh, you know, maybe it didn't make any difference, yeah. but maybe it planted a seed. That's true. Yeah. And, and, and even as I was walking around the store, I thought about it. And when I saw workers who were wearing masks correctly, mm -hmm. I said, thank you for wearing your mask correctly. And I explained the leukemia story and said, this is why it's important. So maybe that will start to change the culture a little bit. Yeah. Um, but again, going back to the, this yogic ideal that Ramana Maharshi puts forth, that self-realization is your, your highest service to the world. It's because when you are established in the self and you are calm and content and mm. peaceful and truthful inside, 
you are going to respond appropriately in a given situation. Right. No, which, that is true. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's okay. Which, which, which simply means that, for example, if you see an injustice being done and, mm -hmm. and, and you are calm and you know how to react, you, can, you will respond in a much more effective fashion than if you just get all, all riled up. Um, but there also might be times where, for example, like with the masks or dealing with family mm -hmm. members, if you are established in your self-realization and you think about saying something to them and you know it's either going to start more of a fight or get them more entrenched into their beliefs rather than being effective and having a conversation and, and working it out you know simply to be quiet and let your own presence be what is transformational this is this is a very controversial topic i think in in, in spiritual circles but um to answer your question this is this is how i would approach it right no i uh, as we're talking i was thinking about uh this indian activist called anna hazare and uh, He's a great leader. He has been able to uh, move masses for different causes. Mm -hmm. And he's, I mean, just by the way he talks and, and the way he is, he looks like a very spiritual man. He looks very peaceful and calm. He believes in nonviolence. So, I, yeah, I, I understand there is a role, uh, uh, as you said. But again, understanding the... Uh, the the background the motivation is very important that right. yeah that, thank you thank you for answering that Anna. right it, it also it also over it overflows to other other things too such as simply mm -hmm. the the desire or the compulsion to want to help right um, and I've seen this being a, a Kriya Yoga teacher and also being involved uh, as a massage therapist, craniosacral therapist in healing fields mm -hmm. and um, teaching people really is what I've noticed, where I've noticed it most, where people come to, to a healing profession, not because they really have a motivation that's, they, they want to they learn something, a skill so that they can be effective for others. Many people come to healing professions because they're hurting. Yeah. And they think that if they help enough people, they'll stop hurting. I see it very rarely have I met a healer or someone involved in the healing field that really did it just because it was, it was truly their dharma, because they had an interest in it and they wanted to attend to it. Um, this, the same is true for, for people interested in, in being a spiritual teacher. Or, and I know we're going to get to a, to a question about that. Um, Many people who they want to be spiritual teachers, they want to help other people, teach others yoga and meditation. And oftentimes it's not because they simply have that as their dharma and as part of their path and purpose where they're going to be good at it because they've got the skills and they're set up to do that. But it's because deep down inside, they, they, they want to help others because they still don't quite feel good about themselves in a way. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, no, no, it does. It does. And, uh, yeah, I mean, for everyone, most, I mean, uh, mostly people li listening to this, majority of people listening to this, probably we, we all uh, started our spiritual path because we were unhappy or hurting in some way or the other. So, yeah, all of us, we do understand this. Right. Absolutely. And that is why, again, going back to Ramana Maharshi's idea that um, – uh, self-realization is the highest service is because mm -hmm. the clearer you get, the more you become aware of your little psychological complexes and whether you're really doing it because, you know, if someone wants to be a doctor, are they mm -hmm. really doing it because they just love anatomy and they just love mm -hmm. the idea of cutting out tumors on people mm -hmm. all day? Mm -hmm. Or are they doing it because they're motivated by this need to think that they are, they're only worthy if they can help other people or they're doing it because they want to make a lot of money. If you've, if you've, worked on your self-realization, your own inner work, you become mm -hmm. very clear on the fact of, oh, well, these are my skills and mm -hmm. this is really where I can be of service and it's not going to be uh, directed by or uh, inspired by compulsions. It, it'll be in inspired by general, true inspiration. So I, I think that that can be applied across the board to activism, to the work you do, to helping people, to any choice that you make, really. Yeah. No, no, I, the, that that's a great answer. Thank you, and I'm glad that you talked. You brought uh, brought up uh, self-realization, the idea of self-realization, because my next next question is about that. <laughs> and basically, it was <clears throat> uh, the first lecture of the Kriya of of uh, the first year of Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program. You asked us that, what do you think is uh, self-realization is? 
Uh-huh. What are your thoughts of self-realization? That was a question that you asked us. So I want to, you know, turn the tables and ask you the same question. And also whether this this definition of yours have evolved, has evolved over time. Yes. Well, before I answer that, um, let me ask you, how did you respond to that question? <laughs> <coughs> oh, I, I should have been prepared. <laughs> 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 That's okay if you don't if you if you don't <laughs> No, I mean uh self-realization um I mean we just did the homework on this. So uh well, if you need me to pause it so you can go get into your email and check, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think I can talk. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. yeah. Uh so I think it's it's knowing that we are not our body, we are not our mind and uh there is much more to um life than just being bogged down by you know the day-to-day affairs of life which is very important but then it's it's much more than that and right. uh, consciousness of course um, lives on forever mm-hmm. so realizing that that's this is not who you are and your true identity if it if there is any is completely different so Right. Well, good. Okay. Um, so to answer the, the second part of your question, ha- has your definition changed over time? Yes, my, my definition has changed over time. And hopefully everyone's definition will change over time because we are growing. And, and when we first start on the path, we start and we have an idea of what it means. Um, when I first started way back, um, yeah what I thought self-realization meant was that I would have a constant all the time feeling of bliss where I knew I was one with everything. And if I was walking down the street and I saw someone walking towards me, since I knew I was one with everything, I could almost even feel their body walking because we're all one. (laughs) Uh, So I had this really fantastic idea of what, (laughs) what self-realization was supposed to be like. And that was okay because it it helped to keep inspiring me along the way. But as, as time passed, I I began to study more and meditate more deeply and more effectively. Um, I always went back to uh, in a sense what is defined in uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali in the very beginning when it's described that samadhi or yoga Mm. is experienced when the fluctuations and changes in the meditator's awareness are restrained and pacified. Yoga, citta, vritti, naroda. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, even when, when I first started reading that and understanding that, what I thought was everything stops meaning nothing is happening in a way. And, and I, I, I strove to achieve that for a while. And then eventually it became clear to me that these fluctuations and the changes in the meditator's awareness, what they really are, are the definitions and concepts that we have. For example, I'm trying my best to explain this with words. And that's the other thing I've learned about self-realization is that it can't be explained with words. Um, But it's like, as if we are, we are walking down the road and most people are are thinking all the time. They're saying, Oh, look, the tree is moving because the wind's blowing. I've got bills to pay. Someone's coming down the street. They look kind of scary or look, that person looks like my grandmother. They must be a sweetheart. Like all these things that go through the mind and those are the fluctuations and changes which are, are rising and falling. Mm-hmm. And when a person abides as the self, experiences the self, again, the, the best way I, I know words to describe it, it's, it's moving back so far back into that witnessing presence that there is no longer an attachment to definitions. It's, it's pure experiencing. Mm-hmm. And that can happen while your eyes are open and you're walking around and you're engaged in the world, pure experiencing. But what most people compare it to or relate it to is those moments of pure experiencing, pure awareness when your eyes are closed and your awareness is turned within and you are aware of nothing else other than pure existence being, as Mr. Davis would say, my, my Kriya Yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. So what I have come to understand that self-realization means is 
um, being and abiding as that self, which is essentially pure existence being. And that can happen in meditation. That can happen right now when we're having this conversation. That can happen at any time. But it's all about being that awareness. Because many people say, well, what does the self look like? Or how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you see the self? And you can't see the self. You can only be the self. Just like as, uh, what's his name? Uh, Alan Watts. Alan Watts would say, you can't bite your own teeth. Yeah. And, and as, unless there's a mirror around, you can't see your own eyeballs. So the self, you can only be the self. And it's when, it's when we've meditated well enough and we've lived a life organizing our nervous system, our, our situation such that we're able to finally exist and experience that pure existence being. And at first, usually, it's in deep meditation that we catch a glimpse of it. Yeah. It's always there. It's always there. Yeah. Um, but then we start to experiment with, oh, well, how do we, how is it, how is it maintained even when, we're, when it seems like the body is moving and the lips are talking and, yeah. and the wind is blowing? And it eventually begins to en encompass every experience and then even even then it goes even further to where um a person can be and act just like everybody else they can still demonstrate anger they can still demonstrate love but inside they are aware of what they truly are and they're not they're not defined by it they're not pulled into it does this make sense what i'm trying no, to share? It, does. it does yes absolutely um i mean i, I just have a follow-up question um mm -hmm. You remember the first time you you had that realization? When was it? <laughs> it was March twenty I mean, second. Uh, no. <laughs> what? No, I don't. I was I was making a joke. I was going to give oh, you the okay. exact no, date. <laughs> okay, I, I can remember. I can remember one of the most uh, the most vivid times that it, it became clear to me. Hmm. In a way. Uh, whenever I would I would go to CSA and meet with Mr. Davis at the retreats, um, and then of course come home and, and meditate on my own and, and continue life as as it was, um, I always I always knew that these words, like what I'm trying to describe, the way he described it, I always knew that they were true. Mm -hmm. um, and what I found fascinating was. It was probably about five years after I was I first met Mr. Davis and was initiated, and it was right after I was ordained uh, as a, a Kriya Yoga teacher that I had this understanding. But then one day uh, I was to drive down about two hours from my home to a Unity Church in Charleston, West Virginia, and give my very first talk on on Kriya Yoga and meditation in, in a church setting. And I can remember going down there and I can remember giving the talk and I can remember feeling inspired because there was also a, a Kriya Yoga initiation service that followed that. It was a wonderful time. But then as I was, as I was driving home, I had to stop for gas. And mm -hmm. I stopped in this little town and this was in the middle of West Virginia where mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the population was probably less than a hundred in this little town. <laughs> and the, the, the gas station was run down. The, the bathroom smelled terrible. Um, <laughs> But I went and I started <clears throat> pumping gas. And as soon as I started pumping gas, I just happened to look up and I saw the clouds and how they were moving. And everything became silent. Everything became just pure experience beyond anything I'd ever had realization I'd happen at that point. And I, there was not even a mind to say, oh, that's interesting. It just, it was, it was expansive. Mm -hmm. And I did chuckle to myself because you know, here I am at a gas station that looks terrible and smells bad. And, and uh, it's not like I was just back teaching or where I was deep in meditation. It was, it was this experience and everything became perfect and crystalline and clear. And it persisted for quite a while after that. And I began to um, remember after that point, moments when I was a teenager and when I was a child, when I experienced that. It was like I couldn't relate to it. I couldn't, I didn't remember it. But after I'd had that experience, I began to remember every other time 
when that happened, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the reason I, I consider that's the case is because um, there's, no, there's no mind going on. There's no thoughts. There's, there's nothing to remember. It's not like, you know, something major happens and you can mm-hmm. define it and say this, this, and that. It's just, it's, it's beyond concepts. So the mind really can't remember things beyond concepts. Right. But, but that's a beautiful thing. And it's described in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali too, mm-hmm. is that as you, as you have moments of samadhi or, or, or realization, um, that those leave a positive impression in the mind. Mm-hmm. And in time, the more you have those, uh, the more you start to realize just how common they actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I guess that would probably be around, uh, maybe July or August of 2005, I think when I mm-hmm. first remember, um, that kind of experience. And then of course, as I said, I remembered all the other ones I had <laughs> previously. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's, it was interesting. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much. No problem. Okay, so we are, we are done with the first set of questions. So let's okay. move on to our next topic, which is on death. Okay. So, uh, uh, so basically, that's my point of entry in spiritualism. That's why I'm like fascinated. I, I've always been fascinated by death. And uh, I started watching all these videos on near-death experiences um, two, two and a half years ago. And that led to a chain reaction and then eventually I found Kriya Yoga. Mm. Uh, and recently I got to know that even you've been interested uh, in learning more about near that experiences. And uh, I just wanted to, to un- I, and I know both of us, neither of us are uh, experiencers or have any kind of expertise on the matter, but I just wanted to know your opinion on uh, the experiences that you have heard about or read in various books, how does it, like how, mu- how much of it resonates with you as a yogi? Yes. Uh, well, a-, a lot of it does. And you're right. As far as I can remember, I don't recall ever having a, a near-death experience. Um, I, I did almost drown one time, but other oh, really? than that, <laughs> I, I, I don't remember that being a near-death experience. I just remember being a kid and, and looking up from the bottom of the river and, and seeing mm-hmm. my uncle up there and seeing him reach down and grab my hair and pull me up out of the water. Um, but anyway, uh, I became interested in, well, I've always been interested in it because um, part of the process of yoga and even uh, Kriya Yoga is there's a technique called um, Yoni Mudra or Jyoti Mudra. And that is the practice of learning to see the inner light in the the spiritual eye. Mm -hmm. And um, Mr. Davis would always describe Yoni Mudra as Yoni means like the birth canal. So physically it's like the birth canal. Mm -hmm. But in this context, it represents the birth canal through which we are born into higher awareness. And when I would have those experiences uh, doing that technique, I always would remember uh, how people described that when they had a near-death experience, they would see a radiant light that they would go through. Mm-hmm. And so early on, I always had the sense that what we're, what we're doing is we are, we are essentially dying in meditation and we're learning how to go through that light consciously. And even, even I believe in the Bible, uh, I think Jesus says to die daily, or maybe it's one of the apostles, I'm not sure, but one of them says to die daily. And that is what started my first interest in this, because I've also always been interested in in altered states of consciousness other than just normally how we experience the world. Um, But uh, as as you know, and as many people know, um, my wife was suddenly diagnosed with uh, extremely aggressive form of leukemia after being a vegetarian, a yogi, living probably the most uh, pristine life possible. And um, that really puts in your face uh, the idea of facing death, even though it wasn't my own, you know, it was watching someone who had been part of my life for more than half of my life since I was 16 years old. And um, I began to watch videos or see uh, discussions on near death experiences. And um, even in the Kriya Yoga apprenticeship program, i believe, I don't remember if it's year one or year two, but one of them, 
uh, I require that students watch the video by a fellow named, I believe it's Peter Fennick, maybe it's Peter Fenwick, but I think oh, yeah, it's- Yeah, 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 you, I think you talked about it in one of the Q&A, and yeah, I'd, I'd watch that video, yeah, I know what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, so this fellow who, uh, I don't know if he's still alive, but he was a researcher, he was a psychologist, and also I believe he uh, was a, a scientist related to neurology or neuroscience. Yes. Yes. And he had an extreme fascination with, with dying, near-death experiences. And so the video I think I recommended people watch was called Dying Well, which yeah. might be a TED Talk. But anyway, if you want to look that up, it's a wonderful. I think I've watched it, that one. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful did. discussion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason I wanted them to watch it is because essentially when he describes dying well, it, is, it, almost, it almost mirrors the process of practicing yoga. Because it's all about letting go of your attachments. Mm -hmm. It's all about letting go of that small sense of self and who you think you are. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what, I, what I've come to understand is that near-death experience is the process of dying and dying well. It, it perfectly mirrors essentially what yogis are trying to do or doing uh, consciously with their work, with their, their yogic practices. They're learning to do that. And they're learning to live those principles of not being attached to their mind, their body, their small sense of self. It doesn't mean that they don't still take care of their body or they still don't act in the world. It's the key is not being attached to it. So to answer your question, personally, I think a study of near-death experiences, a study of death in general, of dying well, um, that that really aligns perfectly with yogic philosophy because essentially what we're doing as yogis, and even as Mr. Davis would say, we're learning to let go of the small sense of self. And that, that, that is the biggest obstacle that gets in our way of realizing what is true. It's identification and attachment to this little personality that we think is so important. And if we can let go of that, then we're able to experience this clearer, greater, grander consciousness of which we are really all a part. Yeah, no, that's true. And I also watched this TED talk by Amita Murjani or Amita mm -hmm. Murjani, I forgot. Yes. So, uh, I mean, that's one of the most popular TED talks on near-death experiences. And she talks about the same thing, right? That we are in the, when we are in the physical body, it feels like we just have, we have a horse's view. We can only see things from one perspective. Right. And then when you are out there, uh, you know, in her, experience the whole universe was like she was aware of everything around her so it was not uh, you know she was not bound by her physical body so so all of that also is is quite what we study right and what we aim to to achieve someday i don't know Right. And, and, and bringing Anita Morjani up, that's a, that's a good point, because the other thing that, that's worth learning about near-death experiences and even people who are dying, and since I watched Melissa die and yeah. I was there when it happened, um, one of the, the key functions that I have seen that happens as people get closer to death, or at least I've only watched one or two personally, but even in Anita Morjani's case and a few others, what they all seem to come to is that what is so important in this world, what yeah. is of ultimate importance in this world is number one. Well, it's not really numbered, but we'll just say number one, yeah. <laughs> living without fear, yes. living without fear. And number two, giving more love. Yeah. And I mean, I can remember as Melissa was on her way out the last seven weeks as her body got weaker and weaker and she couldn't walk anymore and these sorts of things. She was still radiant inside and mm -hmm. she went and she bought uh, uh, T-shirts for all of her friends that simply just said love on it. And she was all about that the most important thing that we're here to do is to love one another, to, to exist in a state of love. And Anita Morjani talks about that. Mm -hmm. Many other people I've studied who died and came back, they've described that that love is what it's all about. And so not only is it, not only is it um, supportive in regards to letting go of attachments mm -hmm. and learning to live freely, but it's learning to live, doing whatever it takes to live without fear, which is why one of the reasons, or which is one of the reasons why, for example, in um, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, the practice of yoga, Kriya Yoga is one of the practices is surrender in God. Mm -hmm. Because if you are surrendered in God, 
you have faith right. and you are not living in fear. Yes. And people have to, if they want to do this well, they have to find a way to do that. If they're eating their vegetables and they're extra exercising, and they're being kind to their kids and their, their loved ones and their friends, and they are giving more love, but, um, but they, they can't quite surrender or they don't have the faith to trust in life because life is still going to steamroll you every now and then. And, and, and part of having the faith and, and the trust and surrender in God isn't, I'm going to surrender and trust as long as things are going well. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm going to surrender and trust, period. Yeah. And, and so a person is, is practicing yoga, is practicing Kriya, if they are actively figuring out, working on ways to live like that. Mm-hmm. And if, if they can, uh, probably dying won't be so difficult. Their life will be much better. They will be embodying these yogic teachings. So near-death experiences, dying about letting go of attachments, giving more love, learning to actually have faith and surrender. All this, uh, I believe, comes out in, in, through the study of near-death experiences, but also watching and observing people who have died well and the experiences they have had. No, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely true. And there's so much to learn just by uh, you know, reading or watching these people talk about their experiences. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about life and what is important in life and, uh, you know, where we should be, where our energies and our attention should be focused, all of those things. So, yeah, I agree with everything that you said. Yes. Is there anything that you thought was contrary to what you've, um, your experience has been as a yogi? I, I have to say, no, not really. Um, because the practices of meditation themselves are, in a sense, uh, it's it's like simulating if you do it if you do it right, mm-hmm. it, it's like simulating the death process. Now, people might take that just because of misunderstanding or or not really having maybe having a different definition of of words and ideas, but. Um, the meditative experience is, is really about letting go of this, this small sense of self, as we mentioned, and that can be painful and scary for some people. Mm-hmm. But the more, we, the more we do it well and the more we kind of see it that well and we look at it more of a, instead of being like, no, no, I don't want to do that. That's too scary. Saying, you know what? That's scary, but I know this is part of the path, so I'm going to walk through it and I'm going to come out the other side and see what happens. So I have found that really... Um, the, the the processes of meditation, the, the the way that a yogi is is indicated to live, say through the yoga sutras of Patanjali and and, and so on. Um, no, I really think that, that that an understanding of death, trying to understand death at least, because I don't think it's understandable, but yeah. trying to understand death and respect it and honor it and see it as a part of life and a part of God as well. Um, I, th- I I I've not seen anything contrary to that. To the yogic teachings yeah no, i agree i agree with that um and there's a i mean you've already talked about it from your own meditation experience but i wanted to talk about this study uh, that was published in a scientific journal and it talks about how in a longitudinal study they found that buddhist meditators buddhist monks they can induce near-death experiences at a pre-planned point in time mm. and they can actually get into an NDE experience anytime they want. So what, what are your thoughts about? Do you think that's, I mean, I, and they found it, so mm-hmm. it is possible, but what are your thoughts on this? Well, that, what, what's being described here uh, in the study that you mentioned, um, and I'm just going to, the, the title of it was Meditation Induced Near-Death Experiences, a three-year longitudinal, yes. longitudinal study, right? Yes. Yeah, by William Van Gordon and a whole host of other people. Yes. <laughs> um, basically, yes, that's, that's when you read an, an autobiography Yogi and you, mm-hmm. you read about experiences that Yogananda is having, when you read about um, these yogis going into blissful states, well, that's what they're doing because mm-hmm. you, can't, um, you can't experience what's called samadhi or oneness while you are still identified with this little personality. 
So what they're describing in this study, what the Buddhists are describing as near-death experiences and so on, that would be the same thing that, uh, uh, that a yogi would say he's he or she is experiencing when they have utterly and completely let go of attachment to the small sense of self and have freed their awareness into that state of pure consciousness. So yes, it's, it's completely possible. It's completely normal. Um, so if we're looking at it that way, then you asked me if I had experienced near-death experiences. I, I guess I'm going to say yes now. <laughs> <laughs> Be because, because that's, um, again, the meditation process, if it's done right, that's what happens. That's why through the Kriya Yoga practices, you do supportive practices, and then you conclude with that Yoni Mudra. Mm -hmm. Because then you, you train yourself to see that light and then mm -hmm. to go in and go through that light. And that is what happens when a person has a near-death experience. Um, so uh, the short answer to that question is simply, that doesn't surprise me at all. And yes, if we, if we do our practice as well, and we really get in there and become skillful at it, um, sure, we can, we can learn how to experience that all the time, which is why uh, it is possible that people who've been practicing yoga for a long time don't necessarily truly fear death. Yeah, uh, because they've done it so many times already. Um, mm -hmm. There still might be a little attachment they have to shake, but that passes very quickly from what I understand. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And uh, it, it may be then, now that we're talking about it, that people who've become very skillful at at least the Kriya practices as I know them and can flow their awareness through the, 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 the spiritual eye center and see that inner light, then they're probably, yes, achieving near-death experiences in that way. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, I mean, the the comparison between like the comparison that you made between uh, you know the Jyoti Mudra, where you see the spiritual the light in the spiritual eye, and a uh, lot of these experiences talking about seeing a light through and moving through a tunnel of light. And th that makes sense now. Actually, I never put those two things together. So yeah. Yes. And the next question is actually, you've already answered it partially, uh, which is basically, should we be talking about the way death is perceived in our society? So yes. already, but yeah, if you have anything more to add to that. Well, now that I think about it, I, I, you know, you are the second, uh, the second student in the, um, the, the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program to, to take me up on the offer of, of doing this podcast and, and interviewing me. And yeah. Mitch Hankins was the first one. And um, I, I kind of remember him also talking about this stuff. So it's making me wonder <laughs> why, <laughs> why, why it keeps coming up. But um, to, to, be, to be clear, um, yes. Uh, I do really, truly feel that a change in the perception of death uh, would really help out so much in our society and in our culture, because I've thought about this a lot. Again, uh, up until um, Melissa got sick, I didn't really think about it a whole lot. Um, I'd experienced the loss of, of, of elderly Mm -hmm. family and friends but in my mind it was just well they're old so of yeah, course yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of, of course the body is is meant to die and go but you know when melissa died she was maybe 42 it, it mm -hmm. i think she was 42 and uh very young and vibrant and still had a lot of life in her and um it made me realize that death is everywhere and can happen at any time to anyone okay. and what we do in our culture now is we have science such that we can avoid seeing and experiencing death. For, for many people, we can go a long time without really having to face it. And when you don't have to face death, when you haven't seen death, when you haven't really contemplated death or, or, or been forced down that road, um, you live life very differently. And now that I, I have personally faced it and experienced it in my life, I realize just how much, how much more precious it makes life. I, I have realized just how much more important it makes every moment in life. And this comes back to an idea. Um, people have asked, at least one student asked me before, how can one be in relationships and, and love without attachment? 
because we think of love as, oh, I'll never be without you. Uh, you know, uh, we will always be together and um, those sorts of things. Um, but, and I was that way. Uh, so I had, to, I had to face that. And it taught me that by facing death, you, you begin to realize that, that all love is important and that what it, the type of love that is most important is the love that is free. Meaning when you are in a relationship with someone or you are doing something, you are, you are loving, you are doing that thing, you are experiencing that, not for anything you hope to get out of it in the future. Not because you think that you've got another 40 years together and so you're, you're, you know, you're doing whatever you're doing, but you can, you can love someone and not expect anything from them. And that becomes a, a free kind of love in that you're there, you're present. Um, you, you are maintaining a relationship respectfully, so you're not just being um, irresponsible or, or, or thinking that you just give free love to everybody. Not, that's not what I mean. Um, but you, you, you realize that you are loving them right now, and the time may come when they're not around anymore, or they may die, they may move on, you may change, but it's okay. You, you're able to let that go because you know that love is eternal and exists in all things and all people. So other circumstances, other situations will arise where love is present. And what I found personally is that by facing death in this way, that um, I began to see that, for example, what I found so important about my relationship with Melissa, the love there, is it comes through any way it can. Meaning when I had that time from 16 to, uh, I don't know, what was it, 30, 39 or somewhere like that with, with Melissa, and I thought she was the love of my life, that that's all there ever was. And of course, I had to go through a year and a half, two-year period of time of feeling like I was utterly torn in two, and I had no idea how I was still alive after experiencing that. But I began to see, if, if I paid attention, that people would show up in my life, and it was almost as if that love that I knew in Melissa was here again but it was because what was real was the love it wasn't that i it wasn't what i identified with the, the body of melissa mm. and and the personality of melissa it was simply the love and so if we're able to change our perception of death in our culture if we can embrace it i've said this before uh in in hindu traditions uh there are gods of death mm. there are gods and goddesses of destruction and all the gods and goddesses in the, in the Hindu, uh, Hindu religion, uh, hopefully I'm talking about this correctly, um, we, they can be seen as separate entities, but really, ultimately, they are simply powers of the one whole force presence being the ultimate god, however you want to describe it. And so what that means is that death and change and pain and illness is also God. And if we are able to see that, that even those things that we can't even think that our little personality could withstand or bear, if we can accept that as God too, well, then we become whole. So in my mind, if we changed our perception of death, if we learned to embrace deaths, to see it for what it is, and, and quit trying to always maintain this positive view of life or this this idea that life always has to be good and always has to be perfect in the way that we want it to be we would become whole and then as we go through our lives we probably wouldn't even really be talking so much about self-realization all this because we would already be whole we would already know that everything that happens is one whole experience life god and that is uh, beyond the mind that is the totality of it all so i think that uh, it's very important to if we can find some way to contemplate this, it would also even change the way we live our lives. Um, you know, I, I haven't talked about this very much with, with too many people, but, um, you know, after, after going through the experience that I did and early on in my life having had difficulties with things like uh, uh, depression and anxiety um, and having a view of life that was a little different than, than, than many people, um, I remember reading a study. What was the study? No, no, I'm sorry. I remember uh, reading um, a uh, about a psychologist, and I believe this was a this was a long time ago. But he was a, a psychologist, and when when clients would come to him, 
one of the first questions he would ask them were, uh, or was, if they were sad or depressed or felt suicidal, he would say, well, why don't you kill yourself? Not, not in the, the morbid way, like sarcastic, but he would say, for what reason, why are you still alive? What, what is your reason to be alive? Why haven't you done it yet? And because that would help to direct them to um, what was important in life. And I thought about that a lot after, you know, sort of grieving Melissa and, um, continuing to meditate and, and do my practices and study. And um, I heard someone else talking one time, and this was more recent, it might have been on a radio show. They were talking about working with people who, who had suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they said, look, this is, this is how I work with people. When someone had suicidal thoughts, what, what, what I would ask them, what I would say is, um, okay, so today you're feeling suicidal. So today... If there's anything at all that you would want to do that would keep you from killing yourself, what would that be? Like something you would enjoy doing or something you feel like you needed to do. And, and the person, oh, huh, well, yeah, all right. So rather than thinking about killing myself, you know what, I'm going to go do this thing. And what this stimulated in my mind was this whole idea about death is that if we, if we had a choice between dying, being dead, or killing ourselves or something, or doing something that supported us, that brought us alive, that brought us into joy again, choose that. And if people kind of had that dichotomy in their mind and, and instead of being dead all day long, in the sense of many people are just caught in a rut and they're, they're miserable and they don't know how to get out of it and they, they don't realize that there's an option there. Mm. You can choose to do something that really brings life to you. And this is kind of a convoluted discussion. I know that we're having uh, we've gone off, off and on. No, I, I like I understand it totally. I mean, I I almost yeah. think the same way, but yeah, probably I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. So so if people if people are not feeling good, or or if, if they're really on some level feeling like you know life isn't worth it, well then they need to ask themselves. All right. Well, why aren't I killing myself? And hopefully they'll find a reason because it's not in any way to engender or encourage suicide. No, no, um, no. I yeah. Yeah, no, I uh, I work in higher education. I know exactly how. Def- what a, what a, it's it's a big problem. Suicide among our young, you know, young right. ma- men, especially, it's right. a big issue. And uh, you know, if we understand all these things and we can talk to them and in a way that they relate and understand and focus on things that are important to them, we may be able to save lives in that way. So I totally exactly. understand that. So and, and it comes down to really what's the problem with that? Because because why do people why do people commit suicide? Because they don't think they have any other options. But what if they had the option of Oh, you mean I can just go do something that I want to do or, or that I'm inspired to do and when the other option is death? Well, then, yes, you go do the thing which you are inspired to do. <laughs> no, no, I totally uh, understand that part. And, um... Yeah. And so I think that if more people really thought about it again, seriously, and, and with a, a sense of wisdom and, and uh, attention and respect and honor, that they might find that their life becomes more alive they, they, they find that they don't have to uh do all these things and even uh you know the book i was talking about last night uh cured by i think it was jeffrey redinger um it's a book about people who had spontaneous remissions from very serious illnesses and one of the things that he describes in that book is that they were faced with death and they decided that rather than go through a lot of these really difficult treatments, that rather than, than go through them, they knew they had a certain amount of time left. And so they were just going to do what they wanted to do that was a meaningful life for them. Mm-hmm. Not what their parents thought they should do, not what their spouses thought they should do, not what their children thought they should do, not what anyone else thought they should do, but what would make their final days the most meaningful. And that was actually one of the uh, components or variables within them having a spontaneous remission is that once they started being in love again with life, they healed. Yeah. And so, and this is, this is part of a, the, the yogic path. And even it's even spoke of in the Bible, you know, when, when Jesus says, uh, you know, let go of your, your family and all this other stuff. And you, you have to let go of all that to follow me. Mm-hmm. And if we want to be alive, 
we have to let go of all those attachments, all that bullshit, all those obligations that we think we have to all these people um, or others and really pursue what is true for us, whether that's our spiritual path, whether that's our own dharma, our own passion, or whether it's just a, a hobby that we are thoroughly engrossed in. That is where we're going to find life. And sometimes it requires facing death or exploring death or, or, or coming to terms with death before we can really even give ourselves the permission to do that. So why not do it now rather than wait until we're backed into a corner and we have to make that choice? Yeah. So I think, I think yes, the, the perception of death in our culture, it would, it, would allow, it would encourage us to really, truly live a life that was, that was meaningful for us. It would make the most of every single moment, moment and we would find a way to be here now. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, totally. How that happens, I don't know, but you know, that, that, that's that's. <laughs> well, that's what we are here to find out. I mean, yes, that, that's something. Yes. <laughs> it, it, yes, it's something we all have to figure out on our own, one way or the other. I think. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so thank you, Ryan, and then we move on to the next set of questions. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.